turn with me this morning to Numbers chapter 16. I really want to preach on number 17 this morning, but in order to do that, it won't really be right if we don't set it in the context of what happened in number 16 that brought number 17 to pass. And so, I did my best to pick the choice passages instead of reading 63 verses this morning. I just ask that you follow me. We'll read verses 1 through 3 to start in number 16, and then 19 through 24, and 31 through 35, and then 41 all the way through numbers 17. Let's begin in verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi with Dathan and Eberam, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Verse 19 through 24. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with all the congregation. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abram. Verse 31 through 35. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their households and all their men, with Korah and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Now, those were the 250 men that had joined Korah and Dathan against the rebellion of Moses. Now, you would think that the congregation would have learned their lesson, but we see beginning in verse 41, that's not the case. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. God says, now I'm going to do to the people what I was going to do, what I did to the 250 the day before. And they fell on their faces. Verse 46. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar, put incense on it, and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. 
Now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident, that being the day before. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Now what we're going to see in the next 13 verses is God's response to the rebellion of God's people. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house. All their leaders, according to their father's houses, twelve rods. Write each man's name on his rod. And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus, I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece for each leader. According to their father's houses, twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, So he did. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Those last two verses, what they're really saying there is now it is evident that we cannot do the work that Moses and Aaron do, though we said we wanted to, and though we were saying that Moses and Aaron had no right greater than us to be leading us and to be doing the special work of the tabernacle, they say here, they finally get it. They say, we will die. If we, if we want to take their work upon us, we will die. So in verse 12 and 13, they finally got it. Let's open this morning in a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your presence here this morning. We're thankful, God, for your ability to touch lives, to save sinners, to encourage the, those that have a downcast spirit. God, this morning, we just pray, Lord, that you would have your divine way with us. God, that you would speak to us. Lord, I ask now that you would anoint me to preach this morning for the next few moments, not in my own strength, God, not, not out of my studies. Not even from my heart, God, that I would preach in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Ghost, of the Spirit of the living God, that this morning You would move on us, Lord, and God, that You would change hearts forever. God, we pray, Lord, that Your Word would go forth in power. God, that sinners would be saved. She would be exalted and lifted up, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I really want to preach on Numbers chapter 17, but before I do, we have to understand why there had to be a Numbers chapter 17. If we just pick up in verse 2 and see God telling Moses to get 12 rods, it doesn't really make sense. And while my, the whole purpose of this morning is to get there, I want to address number 16. 
We read in number 16 that the people were murmuring against God's leadership. It's interesting, they did not think they were murmuring against God, but they thought they were only murmuring against Moses and Aaron. Listen to me carefully this morning. When you murmur against those who are in the place of God-given leadership, you are murmuring against God. You need to be careful what comes out of your mouth when you are sitting with other folks talking about people's ministries, whether it's this ministry or the ministry across the street or the ministry somewhere else, you need to be careful what you say about those in the position of God-given authority. Now, what you will find is most often those who are murmurers, those who are complainers, are those who are not in the position of authority they are murmuring against. That's what happened with Moses and Aaron. Korah and Dathan came together and they said, you know what, these, these men are no different than us. And to some degree they were right. Moses and Aaron were just men. We see that in Moses and Aaron's life, both of them at times had colossal failures. We've been studying so far, if you've been a part of our church the first part of this year, we've been studying the men of the Bible and we see that all of them are men just like you and I. They have weaknesses, they have failures. The thing that denotes a man of God, the thing that makes somebody uh, usable by God is that God has chosen that person and set His blessing upon that person to do the work. It's not that they are some superhuman, super different than us type people. And so the argument that, well... They're no different than us. Why can't we do what they do? Is an absolutely futile, pointless argument. And this was what Dathan and Korah said. You know what? Moses and Aaron, they're no different than us. And then they come to Moses and Aaron and they say the classic argument that everybody else makes. You know, you have put yourself over us. Oh, really? You, my friend, were such a coward that you wanted to live the rest of your life as a slave in Egypt. And Moses had enough courage to believe God and go stand face to face with Pharaoh and say, let my people go. God came and touched Moses. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It was not Moses and Aaron who had elevated themselves above the people, but it was God who put His hand upon them and said, I have a call on your life. And they refused to acknowledge that. I've already said it once. I did not come this morning really to preach on number 16, but here we are. You be careful what you say about God's people. Most of the time it's disguised as prayer requests. You know what? We really need to pray about this. The church is just going this way or that way. You're not really praying about it much at all. You're just trying to cause division, get people to your side like Cora and Dothan and cause confusion, understand this. There are seven things the Bible says that the Lord doth hate. The final one of them is he who sows discord among the brethren. If you are a sower of discord among the brethren, stop it. And if you have people in your life, friends or family, let me say it again, friends or family, who are constantly sowing discord among the brethren, you need to get away from them. Don't sit at the table with them. Don't hang out with them. Don't listen to them. It is a deadly poison. And if you don't believe me, pay attention to the text this morning. You see how God deals with it. This is not my opinion. I'm not just coming at you with my thoughts. We see how God deals with gossip and slander in the church. We see He hates it. He opened up the earth and swallowed up alive for everybody to see those who came against God's appointed authorities. This is serious to God. It needs to be serious to us. So, this happens in the first part of number 16. And then the next day, in verse 41, the whole congregation comes and says, You've killed the people of the Lord. Moses and Aaron didn't do anything. They didn't open up the ground. They just sat there and watched the thing happen with everyone else. God said, you know what? I am done with these people. They are murmuring, negative, always finding a reason to complain against me. See, God saw the complaints as complaints against Him. 
and my authorities and my way and my established patterns. God said, now I'm going to destroy these people. And in that day, 14,700 people died. Over 15,000 have now died because of murmuring. I want you to understand something. The people were murmuring and God heard it. He always does. There is nothing that's done in secret in the sight of God. You might be able to murmur in secret at your dinner table. You might be able to murmur in secret on your telephone. You might be able to gossip in secret and slander in secret in, in, in your supposed what you might call a prayer meeting. But understand this, God hears it. He always does. The Bible tells us God heard it. Secondly, God dealt with it. And He always does. Here's the blessed thing for those who are the Moseses and Aaron's. Those who are really doing what God's told them to do and they're just being obedient to God's call on their life and everybody else is trying to tell them they're doing it wrong. We don't need to worry about dealing with those who murmur against us. Let God handle it. God does handle it. And finally, now we're... What I really wanted to preach on this morning, number 17. God said, you know what? I've had enough. I've dealt with Dothan. I've dealt with Korah. I've dealt with their group. I've dealt with those 250 elders who all joined together against Moses and Aaron. I've dealt with the people. And it is time that I settle once and for all who my chosen leaders are. And God came up with number 17. Now, here's what he said. He said, get all the twelve tribes and the head of every tribe and have them bring a rod, a staff, and put them all in a pile. Make sure you write the names of whose rod is whose so there's no confusion when I do what I'm going to do. And he put all the rods in on a pile. And in the morning, one of those rods is going to have buds that have sprouted out of it. And whichever rod that is, that's who I choose, and it will be settled once and forever who I have put my anointing upon to lead the people of Israel. Can I say that God is concerned about letting the world know who He has chosen? Can I say in a general sense, it is the church. God wants the whole world to know that His church, His chosen people, have His authority with them. That life is in them. But what can we learn this morning about this very interesting thing that God did in number 17? I want to preach to you this morning on the bud of Aaron's staff. First of all, what is a rod? A staff. It is a piece of wood. It is a branch of a tree that has been cut off on both ends. At one time, it used to be alive, but now it's dead. There was a time when each of those rods used to draw sap from the tree. They used to have life in them. They used to all be able to bloom and bear fruit, but now each is dead. It is a picture of humanity whom God designed that each and every one of us be able to draw from the sap of the tree, the life of Christ. But we were cut off because of our sin. And each and every one of us are dead in our trespasses outside of God, born into sin, all of sin, and fall short of the glory of God. And those dead pieces of wood are representative of each and every one of us. All twelve rods, they were the same. There was nothing significant or special about Aaron's rod at this stage in time. They were all stripped of their leaves, stripped of their roots. All twelve were dead and lifeless. This is true about every single one of us before we come to know God. It doesn't matter if you're a good person in society, a bad person in society. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. 
doesn't matter if you have significance in the culture. doesn't matter if you're famous or nobody's ever heard of you. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. If you're successful concerning eternity, concerning spiritual things, concerning God, you are dead and cut off from God until He supernaturally puts His life inside of you. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't earn favor with God. You're a dead branch. Cut off. Incapable of producing life. But something happened to one of these twelve rods. A bud came forth in the morning. God would mark the person by the rod that blossomed. That belonged as His chosen vessel. By giving it new life. Can I say this morning that God gives new life to those that are His. This is what God was saying. God was saying the symbol of my touch upon a man's life is new life. That's the thing that separates him from everything else. That where there was nothing but death, where there was no way for this cut off branch to ever produce life again, I supernaturally did something in him and the dead man came back to life and now he's producing fruit. He's producing spiritual fruit. This is my stamp of approval and authority. This is the fact that my hand is upon this man. God gave us a picture of the resurrection in Numbers chapter 17. God's picture is that of new life. God raised up Jesus on the third day. On that third day, when Jesus came up out of the grave, the staff butted on that glorious morn. And God said to the whole world, This is My Son. This is the One from whom all life comes. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that separates Christianity from every other denomination, every other religion in the world. Our Lord is risen. He is risen from the grave. He came up out of that place. You see, He had to go through what we go through. He went through death. His life was cut off. His heart quit beating. His lungs quit breathing. And for three days, He lay there in a grave. But God said, just as He did with the bud of Aaron's staff, life will come back into that man. And that is how the world will know that the God of heaven and earth is with this man. That He is separate from all other that have ever come before Him. From all other that will ever come after Him. Because life has come to where death had reigned. That is the message of the bud of Aaron's staff. That is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. There is only one who has risen from the grave, and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the bud of Aaron's staff. You see, that which God has touched is always marked with new life. Here's the application today. To you and I. I pray that God will give you ears to hear it. I pray that it will encourage us. I pray that we will quit excusing away lifelessness in our own lives and in the church. God's mark has always been new life. God's mark has always been New life. God marks us out. He separates out His people from the rest of the world by placing the very life of God in them. You see, it's God who makes a rod sprout. None of us have the capacity to do it ourselves. We can look religious. We can go to church. We can put money in the offering plate as if we're tipping God. We can sing songs. We can raise hands. We can quote scriptures. We can answer the test on a a Bible test. But none of that produces new life. Only God can produce new life. 
Only God has the, the power and the authority to take a dead piece of wood and put new life into it and cause life to come out of it. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God still does it. He still gives new life. Those who have truly been born again have the life of God in them. And understand this this morning, there was leaves that come out of it. The thing produced almonds. It was evident for everybody to see. Everybody around stopped and looked at that thing and said, life came out of that dead piece of wood. If you have to convince people you're saved by quoting Scriptures that explain away your sin and your, your half-hearted devotion to God, and you're trying to excuse away why you have no hunger and no passion for God, you might ought to double-check yourself, because when life comes into something, it grows out of it, and it is evident for all to see. And God still gives new life. I would be terrified to think about dying and standing before God if I had no evidence of new life in me. If the only thing I was holding on to was Scriptures that I had misunderstood and misapplied to my life, and I had excused away the sin in my life, I would be terrified. If that's you this morning, I would be terrified. Because there was never a question, never a question, which rod had life. There was never a question of whether or not Jesus rose from the grave. The man was dead and he come up out of that thing. They saw with their own eyes something happened in him. The same is true about the life-giving power of God. And I pray the Lord will help us to see it this morning. No wonder the message has become so deluded and so muddied by the church and the people look on and they seem confused because the church preaches on one hand new life and a changed life and God's power to change us. And then people go on and live in their sin. They don't change. They don't repent. There's no identifiable difference. They don't seem to show a love for God. They show a hunger and a love for the things of the world. And they're no different than anybody else in the world. And yet we're trying to tell them that God changes and God gives new life. And they see there is no evidence of it. But I will tell you this. There is always evidence when God really touches something. God does not do a poor job of anything. He is powerful and almighty. And we can trust that when God gives life, life will come out of it. And people will see it. It is He who puts the power of life into a dead and dried rod. You see, this demonstrates that the power belongs to God and not to us. We need to have a faith and a boldness that says our God does things that nobody else can ever do, that no other religion on the world can do, and if you don't believe it, come to this church and see. That's what we need to be able to say. Because God is here. And because God lives here, and He lives in His people here, and the life-giving power, life power of God has not only changed us, it is flowing out of us. If you don't believe that God has life, that God gives life, and that He is different from all other gods that have ever been uh, peddled by the other religions of the world, come and watch us. We need to be able to say that. Boldly, unashamedly, with the authority of God behind us. But we must be honest, the average message of the church is what? Don't look at us. No, no, no. Look at Christ. Now that's confusing. Because the Bible says you are His body. That Christ is in you. But your response is, don't look at me. No, no. We have lost sight of the fact that the resurrection power of God is to change us from the inside out and to change us forevermore. What Jesus did on Calvary's cross was so much more than just make a way for us to get to heaven. He made a way for us to be restored to God. That's what He did. 
He made a way for the life of God to be implanted into the human body so that we as the temple of the living God can let God's power change us from the inside out and we can walk in that life. We can walk in the newness and power of Christ Jesus and it can flow out of us and change others through us. God's the only one who can do it though. It is the thing that separates God from all others. I'm talking about the purpose of it, but I want to talk about the fact of it for just a moment. The fact is that God can make life out out of death. That's the fact. No matter how dead you are this morning, spiritually, emotionally, Physically, no matter how dead you are this morning, God can give life to your need. He can change you in a moment of time. It doesn't matter how messed up you are. It doesn't matter how messed up your life is. It doesn't matter how long you've been in that state. There is a God in heaven who has the power to give life. And when God touches your dead rod, it springs to life and the and fruit comes out of it and it buds. And there are great things that only God can do. And when He does it, all will know. God makes life sprout out of death. God can change your life in a moment of time. Can you hear me this morning? He can change your life in a moment of time. Like that. Not over a 12-step process. Not over a significant amount of weeks. God has the ability to give life like that. Now, sanctification is a process. I don't want to, I'm not, I don't even want to talk about all that this morning, but I wanted to simply say God can give life in a moment. What you have searched a lifetime for, like the woman with the issue of blood who for 12 years had did everything she could and only grew worse. You take everything that happened in a span of 12 years and you put it together. And what Jesus did in one moment of time surpassed all of that. I'm here to tell you this morning, you might be broken, you might be bruised, you might be discouraged, your marriage might look like it is over, your life might look like it has no purpose, you might be wounded on the inside, there might be something drastically wrong, and you're saying to yourself, preacher, you don't know how dead my situation is, I'm just going to go on past it, listen to me this morning, God has the ability to give life to your dead situation and make it more beautiful than you ever believed possible because He is a life-giving God. That is the message of what God can do. And there's no one else who can do it but Him. There's none. Only God can do something like that. And I'm telling you, not only can He, He still does. You see, this is why too many people never truly come to Christ. They don't understand the power of the resurrection to change the impossible. This is why so few people really, truly depend upon God. They don't think God can change their situation. They don't think God can give life to what is death. Their entire relationship with God, and I sure hope somebody can hear me this morning, If what I'm about to say speaks to one person, it's worth it. Just one. I wonder if that one person is you. Most people's entire relationship with God consists of nothing more than some general religious activity whereby they hope and believe that they're going to go to heaven and never have to suffer through this world anymore. And they're just trying to hang on and make it. Most people, that's the idea. That's modern day Christianity. But that wasn't Christ. That wasn't the New Testament church. Paul said in all these things, we're more than conquerors. And it's because we have lost sight of the reality. The life of God. Let me say it again. The life of God. Think about how vast that is. This eternal Creator God who spoke and the world came into being. That God. His life. It's in me. 
And if you are saved this morning, it's in you. That ought to change us. It will change us. You've got to see that God can do anything in your life. Quit accepting defeat. Quit accepting that it's never going to change. That you're always going to be wounded. That you're always going to be hurt. That you're always going to be in pain. The life of God has the ability to touch any situation. Too many people don't come to Christ because they simply don't understand the power of the resurrection to change the impossible. They see their dead life and they say it's too late. In the natural realm, that may be so, but God's not bound by the laws of nature. If you read on in verse 18 and chapter 18 of, of Numbers, you'll see that Aaron and that priesthood began to be set up. It was now official. You see, this is the staple of Christian living, to serve, to walk, and to live in the power of the resurrection. We must continue in this same resurrection power. It's the only source of life. Paul asked the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? It is overwhelming how many people who have truly been born again try to do the work of God in the power of their flesh. How many think that they can just put together some notes or put together a lesson and just get up and teach and something great's going to happen and they don't learn to depend and rely upon and draw upon the life-giving resurrection power of Christ in them? Paul said, are you so foolish? If it took the life-giving resurrection power of God and the giving of His Spirit to wash your sins away and to bring you to the state of being born again, how much more will you need the same life-giving power of God to do anything on His behalf? So much of ministries. Hope this, I hope I say it right. I, I, God help me. So much of what we see today in the church, it's not God at all. It's just the inventions of flesh and man. We're so unspiritual. We're doing so little for God. And rather than go to God and looking for God for life-giving power and direction, we just come up with ideas. Inventions of man, inventions of the flesh. And it all comes to nothing. No changed lives. My brother talked about it last week with this homeless ministry that, that they do and that we're getting ready to do over the summer. What good does it do if you give a man a sandwich and leave him in a state of death? What good is that? What good does it do if we feed the hungry orphans in Haiti and leave them to burn in hell? Somehow we think we've done somebody a favor. You see, it can look so similar. Are we deceived? Are you deceived? Are you saved? Ask yourself this question. Is there new life? Is there new life? That's pretty simple. That's all you've got to ask yourself. Is there new life? Is there anything that's blossomed out of you from the work of God in your life? Are we deceived this morning? Have we mistaken the inventions of flesh and the carnality of man and our own ideas for a true moving of the Holy Ghost of God? God still changes lives. We know that. We see that here. Radical transformation. You know, about half of our leadership team, I was thinking about this, about half of our leadership team, people who teach here in this church and are active in this church and regularly involved, were non-Christians, not church hoppers, non-Christians who were not saved, who had no relationship with God, that experienced the life-giving power of God, the born-again experience here at this church through the ministries of the people of this place, and God changed their life in a moment, and forever they've been different. He still does it. 
And He can meet your need this morning, whatever it may be. The problem is that too many folks have never truly even started in the resurrection power of Christ. They've been won over on an intellectual argument. Much like a chess game where they finally decided, well, they they must be false and therefore there has to be God. And so I'm just going to do what this person who led me to do. God has to get a hold of your heart, my friend. Salvation is not simply a change of mind. It's a change of heart. God washes the old heart. He takes this stony heart and makes it soft like a heart of flesh, like a heart of clay. He changes us. I want to say it again. When God makes the staff bud, when God gives life, it is evident. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I'm not ashamed to say that. I stand here on the authority of the Word of God and I say it again. When God gives new life, it is evident. If there is no evidence of new life, you need to repent and get saved. I don't mean just rededicate your life. I don't mean just come to the decision that you know what? You're not really being like a Christian should be and so you're going to give it another world. You need to be saved. You need the new life of God in you. All things become new. All things. All things. All things become new. Do we believe it? It is evident when God gives new life. Preachers, teachers, people of ministry, we have nothing without the resurrection power and anointing of God. Everything that you do without it is death. It does not matter how many people are involved. It doesn't matter how great their names are. It doesn't matter even how sincere their work is. Everything else is rejected except the new life of God. Aaron's staff was the only one. And God said, this is the one I've chosen. You see, the sprout of life was God's clear And listen, only Mark that he chose to mark Aaron away from the rest. It is the only Mark God was concerned about. Hear me this morning. Many of you have been here for years. You'll know that what I'm about to tell you, I'm telling you from my heart. I mean it. For every fiber of my being. If the resurrection power is evident in a person's life, then we ought to be satisfied with what God Himself has marked as accepted. We don't need to be worrying and arguing and complaining about secondary issues of doctrine. My my, uh, years of being able to travel, I travel a lot. Some of you know that. I've been from coast to coast. I have, I have been with, worked with multiple different denominations. I have a handful of friends who are evangelists or pastors from almost every denomination you could think of. I'll tell you one thing that I have seen, I have experienced. The deadest places on earth are those who live and die on secondary issues. You could walk in and scrape frost off the walls. You know when there's no life in a person? When there's no new life? When the life of God's not radiating out of us and our life is not truly the life of Christ? It'll become evident the lack of our spirituality and we're left to do nothing except talk about religious things to make us feel religious. Two of the deadest pastors that I ever knew No life whatsoever. Preached for years without anybody ever being saved. One time I sat at a table with them at Olive Garden. At Rock in Central. And I watched them debate each other for 30 minutes about the question of whether or not Jesus' blood was entirely human or entirely divine or both. 
and why they thought it mattered. I thought, man, you guys could talk circles around just about anybody you want to. And in the last three or four hundred times you've got in front of people and preached the Word of God, there's never been a single soul come to know Him. This stuff is so dead and wasted and worthless. You've deceived yourselves into thinking you're spiritual. There's no life in you. God's mark was new life. Let us see it from the beginning to the end. That's His mark. And here's the preacher's point this morning. If new life is coming out of a ministry, out of a person, we ought to be satisfied with that. It doesn't matter if they're Presbyterian or whether they're uh, Baptist or whether they're Pentecostal or non-denomination. None of that matters. The question is life coming out of that ministry. And if it is, let's stand beside it and say, glory to God. God is in that place. And if God has sprouted out of that place, and if there are buds that have come on the rod, then let us sit there and rejoice and say, God has marked Himself on that place and life is coming out of there and we are for it. If we would see that again as a church, If the church of the living God would realize that was God's mark, and that was all that we were really concerned about, looking for the life of God flowing in and through a people, then much of the bickering and fighting that this world looks on and sees in the church, it would stop. What this world needs again is to see the staff bud in the life of the church. Nothing more, but certainly nothing less. You see, it is the thing that is God's token of evidence. Listen, and I'm done this morning. Final point. It's God's token of evidence. Why did God do this? Why did He do it? He tells us. You know what God said? To shut the mouth. Of the unbelieving. That was God's purpose. He said, I want to shut them up. Tired of it. (laughs) Tired of hearing their murmuring. I will do this thing and then they will quit their murmuring. That's what God wanted to do. And when I hear the chatter of our world and those questioning the power of God and those questioning the reality of the church and those questioning the reality of God that changes from the inside out in a moment of time, from those questioning the born-again experience, I can't help but believe God still to this day wants to shut the murmuring of the unbelieving and He does it by the power of new life. New life is the undeniable evidence of God's eternal power. Remember in verse, the last two verses of number 17, the people finally said, okay, we get it. We can't do what they do. God's approval is upon them. Do you realize, Lord, help us to see it this morning. Do you realize that the death of 15,000 people could not shut the mouth of the murmurers? That's a lot of warning, isn't it? That's a lot of negativity. That's a lot of, look what's going to happen if you don't stop. 15,000 deaths could not stop their mouth. But the life of one rod turned the entire people around. You can't argue with new life. You can't argue with the proof of the resurrection in a person. You cannot explain how a drug addict, alcoholic, needle-shooting, just terrible criminal druggie like myself, like that, was delivered. No 12-step process. No put the man in rehab. No send him here or there. But that fast. Delivered by the power of an almighty God. You can't explain that. I never turned back. I never looked to the left or the right. I just kept on going because the life of God sprouted in me. You can't argue with that. Doesn't matter if you're an atheist or an unbeliever or this or that. You cannot argue with the life-giving power of God. 
And oh, how desperately that's what we need in the church. We need those of you who knew life has been spouted up. Live the thing out, my friend. Go out into this world and let new life just flow out of you. Tell your story. Tell somebody. Here's how God changed me. Here's the evidence that God can change. And if this, this morning you don't have that story, it can be yours. You need to come to God. New life causes the murmuring of others to cease. How desperately we need the resurrection power of new life to be seen and shouted from the rooftops again. You see, it's the glory of God that causes the dead to come back to life. Only God can do it. Only God can do it. We need to set our goals for our services, for our sermons, for our worship, for the things we do, for when we go out and minister to the homeless, when we go across the street and take the word to our neighbors. We need to set our goals so high that it requires the intervention of God. That God, there's some things I have to do. I've got to put on my own clothes and I've got to go across the street and I'm going to have to open my mouth and I'm going to have to say something, but I'm looking for you to do something beyond what I can do myself. Something supernatural. Open the eyes of the blind. You see, I pray that this morning. As somebody whose heart is stony and, 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 and walled up, as somehow God will break through that. And God will show you there is hope. But you have to turn to Him. You've got to come up out of that sin and that lying and that double-mindedness and that wicked heart of yours. You've got to turn from that thing and quit playing games and come to the life-giving God and cry out to Him, God, give life to my dead heart and change me forevermore. And I promise you, if you'll come with a true heart and if you'll come with the attitude that you're going to turn from all your wicked ways, God will meet you there. He has never left anyone at the altar alone. He'll meet you there. He'll change you forever if you'll let Him. So worship team comes. There will be one final day when God gives life to the dead. And on that final day, God will say to all the world, it'll be evident to every kindred, tongue, race, to all the people of the world on that final day, the resurrection day, when we who are alive and remain will be caught up to see Him, but those first who have died before us will come up out of the graves. Those who have died in Christ Jesus, the Bible calls them sleeping there. There will be a final resurrection day. And on that day, it will be God's final declaration to all the world. That He alone is God. That His Word is true. That He is exactly who He said He is. That He's done exactly what He said He would do. Where are you going to be on that day? Where are you going to be? I close as I speak very directly to two people. Just two. Number one to those of you who are saved. And I want to qualify that statement by saved. Let me say it this way. To those of you who have the evidence of new life. If you don't have the evidence of new life, I want to tell you something. I don't believe you're saved. I don't believe that. The grace of God, which is powerful enough to forgive all your sins and to assure you a spot in heaven... That grace is powerful enough to change your life, my friend. So I want to say to those of you who have some evidence of new life in you, the life of Christ, this world needs you and I to live it. It needs us. All this world needs to be able to look at the church and say, they might be a strange people, they might be a weird people, they might be a peculiar people, but they are a changed people. That we cannot argue. This man was an angry, fighting, terrible person. And God changed him in a moment. This man was a hopeless drug addict. And God changed him in a moment. This person was a sinner with no love for God, no desire for the things of God. And now all they do is hunger for God with every breath they take. 
The world needs to be able to see that in you and I. And if there's anything in our lives this morning that has been hindering that, if we have been turning to the left or the right this morning, repent, brothers and sisters. Nothing matters but the resurrection power of God in you. Live it out and be a light to this dark and dying world. And secondly, this morning, to those of you who have no evidence of new life, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. That's who this promise of new life is to. Whosoever. Jesus stood in John chapter 7 and said, Does anyone thirst? Let Him come. It does not matter how wicked you've been. It does not matter how double-minded you've been. It does not matter if you've been playing the game and trying to convince everybody in your life that you've been a Christian for years and you know deep in your heart you're no more a Christian than the man on the moon. It doesn't matter. God still says to you, whosoever comes, let him come. I pray the faithful rise up in you, my friend, to know that God can change your life in a moment. God can take any situation you're facing his life to be placed into that thing and to change it forevermore. You need to be saved this morning. God wants to save you. All you've got to do is be willing to come up out of that mess. You've got to come up out of it. You can't stay in it. You can't stay where you're at. You can't stay in death. You can't stay in your sin. You've got to turn. You have to repent. That's the Bible. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. First thing He said, repent. John the Baptist came preaching. First word out of John the Baptist's mouth recorded when he preached was repent. Acts chapter 2, even after the death of the cross, even after the resurrection, even after the ascension of the Lord and the giving of the Holy Ghost, Peter got up and preached and they came and said, what must we do? They were pricked in their hearts. First word out of Peter's mouth, repent. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, repent lest you perish. You have to come up out of it, my friends. I'm not going to lie to you this morning and tell you you can continue down the same old path that, you, that God doesn't ask you to change, that God doesn't ask you to do anything. Yes, He does. It, does. it doesn't secure your salvation. It doesn't wash away your sins. The only thing that can wash away your sins is the blood of Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. But you've got to be willing to come up out of your sin and repent and leave it behind. If you're willing to do that, if you'll come, you'll confess that to God. And you'll look to heaven and say, God, fill me with this life. I might not understand it all. You might not have... Everything I said this morning might have sounded a little crazy, but somehow, some way, in your soul right now, something's turning and you just know it's true. And there's faith there to believe that God can change you where it's, everything has failed before. I plead with you, come. God will meet you there. Father, move all across this room so you thought you had to keep this up all the work that you do so we